Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. This is episode three of our Matthew series as we go through the New Testament in a year. I did that in air quotes Yeah, because it's this is a symbolic year. So as yeah. long as this year takes us- A preacher's us, year. Yeah, a preacher's year. Exactly. A Revelation 20 type year. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. anyway, where are we at? What have we covered and where are we going to go tonight, Rob? Well, we're in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, well, actually 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. That's what we actually want to stress a little bit, which is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, anything that you want to connect from last time, or do you just want to get into this? Well, yeah, I think you can't really understand the Sermon on the Mount as well as we need to, unless we first understand where it is actually in the book, right? So we've discussed already the last couple episodes now, especially the last one where the story of Jesus is living out the story of Israel. And we're at the, at the story now is he's gone through the wilderness as the Israelites went through the wilderness for 40 years. He went there for 40 days. And now Matthew 5 begins with, and Jesus went up on a mountainside. You know, and some people make, oh, Luke has the same version of the story and mm-hmm. it's on a plane, but Matthew has it on a mountainside. We won't get into that tonight, but, but no, no, it's like, well, Matthew has it on the mountainside because it's, on, it's, it's the new Sinai. I mean, this is the new law for the new people of God and obviously in fulfillment of the old law. But this is Jesus as the new Moses giving his speech up on a mountainside with his disciples saying, blessed, 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 which the law of the Old Testament was blessings and curses. So this is clearly in the context of this Mosaic law of Jesus, the new lawgiver. Yeah. Do you think what we've presented so far as Matthew in our minds, like is clearly paralleling Jesus with the old Testament story is, is this pretty much universally accepted amongst scholars as this is what's happening? Yeah. I think scholars that are attuned to Matthew are certainly aware of it. If you remember when we did the interview with Jace Broadhurst on the gospel of Mark, he started kind of going down that path. And I said, Oh, we're going to discuss that in Matthew. He's like, mm-hmm. Oh, okay, cool. Cause I said, Matthew's actually better, but Mark does it mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that Matthew's even more explicit. So as far as I know, I think this is pretty widely accepted among the, in, within the scholarly realm. I don't think a lot of the pastors know or popular teachers know. I don't, you don't see it in a lot of popular manuals, but certainly in the scholarly world, this is, there's just no question that Mark, that Matthew is doing this. Yeah. And let's be honest. A lot of times, Christians just don't know what to do with the gospels outside of passion week <laughs> and Christmas. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's like, what do we do with all this teaching stuff? Yeah. It, right. Well, <laughs> what do we do with the passion week stuff? Also, yeah, but, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's right. Uh, and NT writes books, I think have been really mm-hmm. helpful on that. Simply Jesus by NT Wright mm-hmm. is really good on this and how God became King. Yeah. That's a, that's a great one. Yeah. Those uh, NT Wright really does a good job on those. And, mm-hmm. and one of those two books, I always get him confused. He starts off by saying what he calls, Uh, all the stuff in the middle. He's like, okay, look, if Jesus just simply came to die for our sins and rise again, then, okay, maybe you can have the birth stories and then you can have the death and resurrection stories. But why is there all that stuff in the middle? Mm -hmm. And Matthew has what, 23, 24 chapters of this in the middle stuff. So anytime I'm thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm thinking Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You know, that's what our uh, Bibles label it as. That's where we popularly put it at but you mentioned earlier, there's some other chapters that we need to pay attention to as well. What's missing if we just pay attention to five, six, and seven, and only categorize that as the Sermon on the Mount? So Matthew uses what we've called before an inclusio. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned this, that the gospel of Matthew is framed with an inclusio with uh, his name shall be Emmanuel, Matthew 1, 23. And then Matthew 28, Jesus says, and I'll, I'll be with you always. There you go. His name's Emmanuel, God with us, and I'll be with you always. So how about this, Vinny? I'm going to read Matthew 4, 23. And if you have a Bible handy, how about if you read Matthew 9.35, and then we'll kind of compare when we're done. Matthew 4.23, and I have the New American Standard, so there might be a little difference if you don't have yeah, I'll be on the ESV. You'll okay. be on New American. Okay. Mine's just better than yours. Jesus was going through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And then... Uh, 935, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. They're almost identical. Mm -hmm. And when it's an oral document, it doesn't matter if there's a little variation here or there. Clearly, Matthew has framed this section that we call the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 4.23. And you can see that the person who put the numbers and chapters and stuff like that and missed it because chapter five, verse one probably should be back closer to 423 and 935. And that means that chapters eight and nine are part of this section. 
even though they read differently, even even though it's not a sermon, even though it goes back into the narrative of of things. Okay. Yeah. Because what's look at what 423 and 935 says. Mm -hmm. He was doing two things. He was teaching in their synagogues, Mm -hmm. namely proclaiming that the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease. So there you go. Matthew five, six, and seven is, is the teaching. teaching in the synagogues mm-hmm. and Matthew eight and nine is, is healing every kind of disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can't separate these two. I know it's five, six, and seven is him saying, here, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is. And then eight and nine is, let me show you what the kingdom of God is. Mm-hmm. So if you take eight and nine and you don't include them, and if you go to almost any book, and I know you've done some studies on the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. before as well. And I've read you know, maybe a dozen books on the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't found one. I have not found one book that's dedicated strictly to the Sermon on the Mount that includes eight and nine. Mm-hmm. When Matthew clearly says, here's the beginning and here's the end, and eight and nine need, need to be part of this. So what happens if you take eight and nine out? Well, you only get the teaching of the kingdom of God and you don't know what it looks like. And I think that's very much the modern church that we've been talking about, that we kind of grew up. Let's just preach the gospel and preach the, the kingdom, but we aren't going to do the deeds of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. We're not, not going to do the thing, you know, just be good people kind of, kind of mentality. Uh, and we lose significantly what Matthew tells us is, is of great importance. Yeah, absolutely. So the phrase you just said a second ago is a kingdom of God. <laughs> and so this, this becomes a, one of the central themes of Jesus. Let, let me actually ask a question. First off, do we want to find the difference between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven? Or are we going to get to that later? No, we weren't, but it's actually very important. Well, especially for Matthew, because exactly because we're using kingdom of God, but Matthew never uses it. He yeah, uses yeah. kingdom of heaven. I think yeah. he so would say kingdom of God. So is there a difference? Because I know that there's actually theological schools that would say these are actually different things yeah. that happen. Yeah. And the answer is no, there's no difference at all. And the way to do that, and we can discuss this in a few weeks or when we discuss Matthew, Mark, and Luke together. If you compare phrases or statements in Matthew where he says the kingdom of heaven, and the same phrase or statement occurs in the gospel of Luke, and then Luke says kingdom of God. It's mm-hmm. clear that Matthew is simply substituting kingdom of heaven, because what happens is a good Jewish person is simply going to refrain from using the word God as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And heaven is where God rules or where God reigns from. So heaven is synonymous with, you know, heaven's going to come down on you for this. Well, that means God's going to come down on you for this, mm-hmm. not heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's simply a figure of speech. So that's all Matthew's doing. Uh, and just comparing the statements of Matthew and Luke confirms the fact that they're just using kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven interchangeably. And Matthew's probably doing it so that he can avoid using the word God as often as possible. Yeah. So in, in a sense, he's being very sensitive to his audience. He's writing yeah. in a very Jewish way. His audience is probably received by mainly Jewish people. And so it, what, like remove those stumbling blocks. Why add those into right. what he's doing? Yeah. Oh, and it might even be he's speaking the way he was raised to speak. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. It might be his audience also, but it might also be like, this is just the way I was raised and we don't use the word God around here. Okay, good. So let's define what this kingdom is. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Well, from here on out, those terms are used synonymously (laughs) on this podcast. I I decree. From now on and and absolutely. (laughs) And if you, yeah. yeah. Uh, Yeah. So the kingdom of God, which is interesting that it's the most common topic of Jesus in all of the gospels. And yet most Christians have a very poor understanding of what it is. And I've done a couple episodes on it in the class that we recorded back in the fall Mm -hmm. talking about it, but let me just summarize it now. So first thing we'd say about it is it's where God reigns. It's God's kingdom. And it means the kingdom of which God is the ruler of. And so we would say, well, God reigns from heaven. But then as soon as we say that, we create this problem. And that is, well, we think that heaven's up there. Like and a spatial spiritual, place, yes, yeah. And that the physical world down here is physical and not heavenly. And the reality is, of course, heaven's where God dwells and God dwells everywhere. So the reality of the heavens all around us in, in that sense. Now, what's interesting about that is we say, well, Jesus ascended into heaven. But sometimes when the New Testament refers to the, the second coming of Jesus, it'll say the coming of Jesus. He's coming from one place to another. But sometimes it says his appearing. And the idea is he's already here. Mm-hmm. He just has to appear or make or become manifested. So the sense of that is the kingdom of God is where God reigns from or God, where God reigns. And specifically, we'd say Jesus is the king of that kingdom. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, although obviously Father, Son, and Spirit could be used interchangeably there. To enter the kingdom of God now, we simply have to acknowledge the rule of God. In other words, what we say you know, to become a Christian is I'm using that synonymously now. To become a Christian is to acknowledge that God is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and that his kingdom is the kingdom of above all kingdoms and the true kingdom. Mm-hmm. 
And we acknowledge the fact that I've actually lived as though maybe Caesar was king, or maybe the president was king, or maybe I was king. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very, very common. My money, my power, my wealth, and for me, my good looks, I don't know about you, but you know, my good looks, <laughs> we look at all these kind of things and say, that's what is my Lord. And the gospel says, no, Jesus is Lord, i.e. he's the king. And the first step of becoming a member of that kingdom then is to repent and say, I've lived as though something else or someone else is king. And instead I'm acknowledging that, no, you're actually the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we say the kingdom began, and this can become a little convoluted here, uh, at the baptism of Jesus. I mean, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And the anointing is usually reserved for a priest or a king. And we'd say he was probably anointed as both. You could also argue that Jesus became the king at the cross. The gospels make no qualms about it. The, the descriptions of the crucifixion of Jesus are clearly intended to say, they don't realize what they're doing, but they're crowning him a king right now. Mm-hmm. He was crowned as king on the cross, you know, the, the crown of thorns on his head, all the things that go along with that. You can also say, of course, that he became the king of his kingdom at the resurrection, right? The inauguration, the new creation, the, the resurrection is the first day of the new creation week. And we'll discuss that in the gospel of John. Or you can say that Jesus became the king out of his ascension, because certainly he ascended into heaven, which is where his throne is, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So nonetheless, the point then becomes that the kingdom of God is where God reigns. Jesus is that king. The gospels are telling the story of God becoming the king and inaugurating that kingdom. Now, one of the things that we kind of confuse a little bit is the fact that the kingdom of God has begun. And you know, Paul will say that you are a new creation in Christ. Mm-hmm. So we say that the kingdom has begun in Christ. And so at the same time, the kingdom of God exists and the kingdom of the world exists. And so as Christians, we live between these two kingdoms. And so we need to flesh out a little bit more like the nature of the kingdom of God and what it means in contrast with the kingdoms of the world. But that, of course, is what we're going to get into as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Um, So then would you say that the idea of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is, this is the central theme for Matthew? It, yeah, it's certainly, if it's not the central theme, it's got to be at the top of the list. I can't think of something else that might take its place. But the kingship of Jesus is, uh, and the kingdom of God has drawn near is all over the gospel of Matthew. The word Christ, which is a name for the Messiah or the king, appears 17 times in Matthew, but it's only seven times in Mark. Called the son of David eight times. The kingdom of heaven occurs 32 times in the gospel of Matthew. He does use the kingdom of God, but only five times. He refers to the kingdom six times. And he refers to the kingdom of the son of man three different times. So this kingdom language is pervading the, throughout the gospel of Matthew. He referred to it as the kingdom of the father, the kingdom of my father, the kingdom of the son of the man. And sometimes you'll see the kingdom of God is clearly future, but sometimes it's mm-hmm. also present in Jesus. And we'll look at that as we, as we continue. So let's then go back to this overall picture of the Sermon on the Mount, which is not merely five, six, and seven, chapters five, six, and seven, but starting at 423 and then going all the way through 935. Why does Jesus do these things, these uh, these miracles? How does this fit in? And you kind of already alluded to this yeah. uh, earlier in terms of teaching and then miracles. But you know, what does what does this look like? What's happening? Yeah, exactly. So Jesus is going to tell us about the kingdom of God and what it looks like and what it means, what kingdom of God people are like in five, six, and seven. But in eight and nine, he's going to show us what the kingdom of God is like, and what he's showing us now. Remember the connection with Genesis that we've seen already in the Gospel of Matthew. What he's showing us now is that Genesis is being reversed we can refer to the kingdom of God as ultimately as Eden restored, but I like to refer to it as Eden redeemed because it's not just Mm -hmm. Eden as it was in Genesis one, Mm -hmm. two, it's Mm -hmm. Eden perfected. It's even better uh, than Eden was in the old Testament time, the gospel and the curse of Genesis then is being reversed. So therefore, because there's going to be no blindness in the kingdom of God, he heals the blind man. Now, mind you, of course, he heals the blind man who still lives in the kingdom of the world. Who's still going to die. Mm-hmm. So when he raises the dead, like Lazarus, for example, well, Lazarus is going to die again. It's telling us what the nature of the kingdom of God is. And that mm-hmm. is that there will be no blindness. There'll be no death. There'll be this mm-hmm. resurrection life. So the kingdom then ultimately is going to be this kingdom of justice and equity for all. And that's what we really need to flush out because I don't think enough Christians understand the significance of that, that it's a kingdom of justice and equity for all. And that this kingdom does not come through violence and revolution, but through love. And we can't underemphasize the fact that from the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus has always known he's going to Jerusalem eventually to die, because that is how the kingdom of God is established. And as we go through the rest of the New Testament over the course of this, of this year, we're going to continuously harp on this particular point, because 
if the kingdom of God was begun by Jesus, it's continued and carried on by us. And if the kingdom is inaugurated through love and not violence, then it's carried on through us Mm. through love and not violence. And I think that becomes a significant thing that we kind of overlook there. Okay. So to follow along your, your thesis of how Matthew's actually being deliberate with numbers and how he constructs things in a certain way. Is there any actual significance to the, like the amount of miracles that we see all stacked up in these next two chapters of chapter eight and nine? Yeah. If you count carefully, you'll note that there's 10 miracles, uh, 10 miracle stories in chapters eight and nine. And it's gotta be, remember if Jesus is being portrayed as this new Moses, this greater than Moses, ultimately, then there were 10 miracles of Moses at the Exodus. That's how they escape from Egypt. And so Jesus comes along and does 10 miracles as the, the new Moses. You know, Scott McKnight says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is the new law and Jesus is the new Moses for the new people of God. So the Sermon on the Mount then is going to open and close with references to the law. So Matthew 5, 17, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. And then in Matthew 7, 12, he again refers to the, the law and the prophets. So, and law and the prophets could be this designation of the Old Testament scriptures, as often called the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's called the law and the prophets in the writings. We can discuss that later. But nonetheless, the law and the prophets is the entire witness of the Old Testament. So there you go. Matthew 5, 17, the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12, the law and the prophets. Jesus is giving us this new law for the new people of God as, as the new Moses. All right. Well, first off, I think you mentioned Scott McKnight. We should have him on the podcast sometime. Oh, we did actually. Oh, you could yeah, go back yeah. and you could listen to our interview with Scott McKnight. I, I think this is something that we talk about a lot in the church. You know, you hear pastors say, you know, Jesus is the new Moses or, you know, he fulfilled the law, this sorts of thing. And that's one of those things where we say, yes, because he lived a perfect life. And like, like we could speak about it in generalities. I don't know if you could actually get the average person in the pew to parse this out. Uh, What do we mean by this? Like what's a tangible way to actually describe this? Yeah. I think this is really significant. Good question. I don't think the average, a lot of the average pastors can parse this out either. So remember Matthew 5, 1 and 2 kind of begins. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them saying, there you go. That's that's Moses. That's what Moses does with the Israelites. If Matthew's telling us the story of Jesus in terms of the story of Israel, then where we're at is we're on Mount Sinai now. And Jesus is going to kind of give us this new law. The gospel of Matthew, I think I mentioned this before, but if not, we'll bring it up now, has five sermons in it. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's because Moses has five books, right? Genesis to Deuteronomy. We know that there are five sermons because Matthew marks them. At the end of each one of his sermons, he says, when Jesus had finished saying these words, and then something will continue. So if you go to the end of Matthew 7, uh, verse 27, there you're going to see that same phrase. If you go to the end, chapter 11, verse 1, you're going to see that phrase. So it marks the end of these sermons. That phrase occurs five times. So we know that Matthew doesn't always tell us where the sermon begins. So there's one up, one example, Matthew 23, 24, and 25. We don't know, do we include 23 in the sermon or mm-hmm. does 24 and 25 exist in the sermon all by itself? But we know 26, one is the end of the sermon because it says when Jesus had finished saying these things, then the next thing that you compare is Jesus and Moses now. And we talked about this a little bit last time, but compare the books of Exodus and the book and the gospel of Matthew. Matthew and Exodus both begin with the birth stories of Jesus and the birth of Moses. Mm -hmm. Jesus and Moses are both rescued from the murderous acts of Herod or or Pharaoh. Jesus and Moses both then go off into Egypt for a period of time and then return to Israel. Jesus, as we mentioned last time, was baptized in the Jordan River, whereas the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, whereas Moses and the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. Both Jesus and Moses go up on a mountainside. Jesus gets the Sermon on the Mount. Moses gives the law. So you have this clear connection between the birth stories of Jesus and the birth stories of Moses. So the reality then is Matthew's framing everything about this sermon in the context of this new law for the new people of God. And that's kind of where where we begin. Now, we'll talk about this later, but Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20 is also in the form of a covenant. Go ye therefore into all nations and make disciples. And so this covenant language that closes the gospel of Matthew this is clearly the framing that Matthew wants us to give us. Okay. So with that though, is it merely that Matthew's trying to reframe Jesus as the new Moses? He's equal to Moses. Like what is he trying to communicate? Yeah. There's no question. When we get into the sermon itself, when we look at it, it says, you've heard that it was said, 
but I say to you, mm-hmm. though you have heard that it was said, it's not Moses's words. It's Moses saying, this is what God says. Mm-hmm. But Jesus comes along and says, well, God said this, but I say this. So Jesus is clearly superior to Moses. So there's no question that Jesus is actually greater than Moses. The significance right now is that the equal, the equalness in the sense that Moses is giving this law, Jesus is giving this new law, but of course this new law fulfills it. Don't misunderstand. The word replacement just has nasty connotations today. Yeah. And, and so, it's and so, so loaded as a theological so term. And yeah. it's not a correct term anyways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus is not replacing the Old Testament law. He's fulfilling it. He didn't say, well, you heard that it was said you should not commit a, you should not commit adultery. But I said to you, you know, that's okay, but do don't do this. Mm-hmm. No, he says, in fact, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery already in your heart. You, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder. Well, I say if you're angry, and you've murdered him already. He's actually intensifying the laws of Moses. He's not uh, obliterating the law of Moses, annulling them, and giving you this new one. In fact, he says that the le- last jot and tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Clearly, he's being portrayed, though, as something greater than Moses in the fulfillment of it all. Now, let me kind of take this one more step, if I can, now, before we kind of get into the, the Sermon on the Mount also. We, I think we mentioned before that Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30 are kind of this most significant text in the Old Testament there. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you know the word Deuteronomy means deuteronomous, it's second law, the, the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy was given to the Israelites after they had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And now it's given to this this new generation that grows up and says, okay, you're going to go into the promised land and take this law with you. So the Ten Commandments appear in Exodus, and they also appear in Deuteronomy. Well, it's Deuteronomy's version that they take with them, essentially. And Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29 kind of spell out, okay, look, here's the deal. This is the way it's going to work. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. It's a covenant. I'll be your king. I'll be your God. You'll be my subjects. You'll be my people. And if you do these things, I'm going to bless you. Now, it sounds like, well, God's like this evil ogre. No, actually, the reason why God was going to bless them was because so the nations would, around them would say, wow, look how great their God is. Because mm-hmm. obviously, if you're blessed with fertility and good crops and protection and all, and no calamities, the gods are controlling this. That's just the way the ancient world worked. Mm-hmm. So if all this prosperity in Israel, then their God must be really, really good. So if you obey my laws and do these things, then I'm going to get credit for it. And I'm going to bless you in response. And the nations are going to go, look how great their God is. And the nations will flow into Israel. Hmm. So the witness of the Old Testament people was, you're going to be a witness to the nations by bringing them in. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, my house should be a house of prayer for the nations. You Mm -hmm. didn't bring the nations in. You're supposed to bring them in by obeying the law. If you don't obey the law, then I'm going to have to kick you out of the land. So if you obey the law, you're going to get land and family and even your cattle and all that you're going to have this prosperity of land and family. But if you don't obey the law, I'm going to kick you out. And the punishment's going to be, you're going to lose the land and your family's going to be wandering off in exile. Now at the end then, in Deuteronomy 30, it goes on to say, well, here's the deal. And I think we read this before that when you come back or before you come back, while you're in that foreign land, and if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 30, let's kind of look at this for a second here. Cause I think there's something really significant that I'm not sure if you've even seen before yet, Vinny. But in Deuteronomy 30, it begins by saying, okay, when you're in that foreign land and then you remember that I'm your God, I think we've read this before, Mm -hmm. and you repent, then I'm going to restore you to the land. The Lord your God, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 30 says, the Lord your God will bring you into the land your father's possessed, and you'll possess it, and you'll multiply you more than your father's. And there's that creation language of Genesis. And verse 6, moreover, the Lord your God is going to circumcise your heart. Mm -hmm. Now, that verse is really critical for understanding what we're going to read in Matthew Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Mm -hmm. God's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. What we know is that the law has these two great commandments, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If the Israelites were kicked out of the land, it's because they didn't do those two commandments. They didn't love the Lord, your God. So when it says that God's going to restore you to the land, here's what's going to happen is I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to circumcise your heart. And as a result of me circumcising your heart, you're going to obey the law. You're going to fulfill that. You're going to do this. So just to interject real quick, a lot of what I'm reading as I'm, as I'm going through Deuteronomy 30 with you, even that phrase, you know, that God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord, your God. Like this sounds a, a 
what a lot of the the prophets are talking about. This is Jeremiah 31, right? right. This is something that was foretold that this is what God is going to do in his people. Yes. Ezekiel 36 and 37. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is the language that Paul picks up on also that mm-hmm. circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Yeah. Let's go back to, to Deuteronomy 30 again, and let's pick it up in verse 15 now and know what it says. It says, see, I have set before you today, life and prosperity, death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply. And that the Lord, your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Now, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, what happens then is you, when you read you know, Matthew 5, here's the new law for the new people of God and the new blessings, blessed, 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 blessed. Then Jesus intensifies the law. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adult murder, but I say to you that if you have hatred, you've committed murder already. He intensifies the law. Then he goes to Matthew 6 and says, okay, now here are the, what it looks like when you pray, when you, know, when you fast, when you give alms, don't do it to be seen by men, but to be seen by your father who is in secret. And then seek first his kingdom and his right, righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And then chapter seven is kind of your summary and conclusion. And summary and conclusion is like, well, okay, let's not judge as to who's in and who's out because that's what religious leaders are doing, right? Okay, you're Jewish, you're in, you're, you're a tax collector, you're out. Do not judge. And if you need anything to accomplish this work, ask, seek, and knock. This is great structure. Here's the new law. Here's what you do. As, here's what it looks like as, as it plays out. You can't serve you know, God and mammon, so you choose which one you're going to serve and seek his kingdom and his right, righteousness and all this will be added to you. And then if you need anything to accomplish it, seek, ask, and knock. And then what does he do? Then he goes on to say, well, there's two gates or two roads, depending on your translation. One's wide and one's narrow. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and there's two trees. There's a good tree and there's a bad tree. And then there's those who say they knew me and those who don't actually know me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. And in your name, work many miracles. And I'll declare them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And there's two houses. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. This is Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth to witness you today that I set before you life and death, the blessings and the curse. So choose life. I set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Choose life. Hmm. That's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is, is actually uh, telling us to do now. I So telling us what to do now, you and I have talked a lot about yeah. on the show and then just more so <laughs> offline about the issue that Westerners have as being individualists, right? Yes. And, and this is how we read the Bible. This is how we read everything. So even as we're reading, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, for truly I say to you, oh, he's talking to Vinny, uh, you know, what are we missing when we're making the you of a second person singular instead of a second person plural? Yeah, well, it's a cultural divide. And the reality is that the ancient culture and many cultures today are corporate cultures, right? Mm-hmm. They're, it's communal. So the Lord's Prayer, of course, is give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's communal. Mm-hmm. And so when we individualize it, the problem that we do with individualizing it is we make it about my personal piety mm-hmm. and my personal righteousness and is my heart right? Instead of saying, no, are we corporately doing the work of Christ? And think about this again. If Israel was called to be God's people and to obey the law so that God would bless them and that the nations would know that God is who he is Mm -hmm. and they would flood into Israel, that's the same analogy that's used in the church today. And that is, if you love one another, they're going to know you're my disciples. They're going to see what I do for you because you love one another. So love becomes the barometer of what the law looks like. And if you do that, the nations are going to be drawn to you and drawn to me as a result of being drawn to you. Now, the difference be- between that is we're going to go to them with this gospel and with this gospel of love. So it's not just simply about my personal piety and my personal righteousness, because we can't be personally righteous apart from the communal element also. And, and of course, there's a role for both. 
But the reality is, is that this is what God's people are called to do. And note that early chapters of Acts were living this out, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're living together as this community. No one thought that anything that they had was their own. They thought that was all, they shared it. And there might be obviously reasons why they had to live in this communal life, but this re- represents what the church is supposed to look like. So along with that then, and this is just something I'm thinking of, I know that when I've had dialogues with friends about the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Protestant tradition, one of the ways that we interpret this as, this is just God, Jesus's ideal way of living. And it's it, the Sermon on the Mount is just teaching us what we could never accomplish. Like yeah. this isn't actually like an imperative. So in light of what you're saying, like that's an erroneous way of understanding the passage. Yeah, because Deuteronomy 30 says, I'm going to circumcise your heart. Mm-hmm. And when I and obviously Ezekiel thirty six and thirty seven says the same thing. I'm I'm going to take away the heart of stone and give you this mm-hmm. heart of flesh. Mm-hmm. And the stone, of course, is what the law was written on. Now we can do it. And here's the key that we, we would note that is because we ask, seek, and knock. Mm-hmm. And what we're asking, seeking, and knocking for is the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, it's interesting when we get to Luke, we'll compare the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, it's in Matthew. He says, you know. Doesn't your father who knows, you know, give good gifts to those who ask you. Mm-hmm. But in Luke, it says that your father gives good gifts. It says, will he not give you the Holy Spirit mm. to those who ask? I mean, Luke literally inserts the Holy Spirit into that phrase. And so, yeah, we cannot do these things in and of ourselves. But the reality is that we are being transformed by the image and likeness of Christ in his glory. As we confess our sins, as we acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and as the Holy Spirit empowers us. Now to become kingdom people. And the next thing I'd say is, well, even if this were ideals that we could never actually accomplish, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to strive for it. Mm-hmm. The reality is, and you, we could talk with you know, different denominations that say, well, yeah. actually perfection is attainable now or perfection is not attainable now mm-hmm. or whatever, wherever you want to go with that. The reality is whichever one of those things you believe, even if you think it's not attainable now, you're still supposed to strive for it. Mm-hmm. Just like holiness isn't, I, I would say, and this goes in the same conversation, like I, I'm not going to be holy because I I just know me and I'm never going to be holy, but I ought to strive for that because I am a holy, pe- part of a holy people. Like yeah, that's what we're called But you will be holy someday. Exactly. Either Either way, way, you will will be be holy someday. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In the resurrection. So let's kind of go one more step here with that. And that's this. When we talk about the the kingdom of God coming then, and the element of this kingdom of God coming now is this, what it means for the world and not just for what it means for me. The point is that it's about God establishing his justice, about him establishing his kingdom. And that kingdom is upside down to the kingdoms of the world. And we'll get there at the, end, at the end of this particular episode today. And that is the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. We know that the kingdom of God is established through love. We already discussed that. That's not how the kingdoms of the world establish themselves. We're supposed to gain honor in the kingdom of God by serving. We don't give revenge, do revenge, we forgive. And if we have any wealth, we're, well, we're supposed to give it away so that we can bless others. So this, the kingdom of God is this radically transformative upside down thing that people look at and go, yeah, I'm not sure I like you. And therefore you're persecuted. Other people look and go, you know what? I see the person's persecuted and they're weeping and injustice and they're seeking righteousness. And I envy that. Tell me more. And there's this drawing element that happens when God's people actually walk in accordance with the, the Sermon on the Mount. All right. So is there any sort of parallel here with the Ten Commandments? Because obviously that's what you're we're, mm-hmm. you know, putting for the idea that there's a compare and contrast with Moses and Jesus and everything that's happening here. But the Ten Commandments, they're, you know, they're about justice and not just personal right, right. acts, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So again, this contrast between how we act and how we act as an individual and how we act as a community. The 10 commandments are ju- about justice, especially for those who are vulnerable. I mean, if you think about it, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath rest. Mm-hmm. And the way I like to illustrate that is, well, who wants to rest on the Sabbath day, the mm-hmm. laborers or the owners of the company? Mm-hmm. And the owner, they want you to work. The provision of a Sabbath rest was instituted by God to protect the laborers from being abused but we make it about this holy day so that we you know, devote ourselves to God. Well, that's true and good and, and, and good, but it's really about justice because the reality is corporations want to work much as they can work you, if not more. And God says, no, I'm going to make this so that my people are required to give rest. In fact, you're even going to give rest to the land. 
which is uh, that would directly relate to what the Hebrews were experiencing in Egypt, right? As yeah. they were working, it, you know. It, yeah, you came out of Egypt and mm-hmm. you know what it's like yeah. to work seven days a week and not mm-hmm. and and have to go get your own grain uh, to make the bricks. Yeah, absolutely. Now I remember being a young man uh, growing up in the church, and and I grew up in a broken home, right? So my dad was an alcoholic and lots of problems, and I always. How do I keep this commitment to honor my father and mother when my dad is this way? Right, well, that's an example of us growing up thinking that the commandments are about us personally applying them in our personal piety. And that's not a bad thing, but that's what I limited the Ten Commandments to. The reality is, is that honor your father and mother actually doesn't apply to you as a child as much as it applies to you in, when the parents are in their old age, because in their old age, they can't work. And if they can't work, who provides for them? And the answer is, honor your father and mother so that when they get too old to work, you provide for their needs and their well-being in this communal society there. Now think about this, the commandment, thou shalt not murder. Uh, who's that going to protect? Well, it ain't going to protect the king because he can murder people anytime he wants. So there's this great story in the Old Testament about uh, this man named Naboth in this village next to the, to the palace of the king and, and Jezebel, the queen goes, hey, you know, go confiscate that man's village. And he's like, oh, all right, maybe I'll sell it. I'll, I'll buy it from the guy at least and make it somewhat equitable. And Naboth says, I can't sell ancestral land. Obviously, as a good Jew, land cannot be sold outside the family permanently at all. It can only be sold within the family if you have needs. And then has to be given back to that family member after seven years or 49 Mm -hmm. years. So Naboth is following the law, but the king's doing what? Well, coveting this land. And so the commandment, thou shalt not covet, is for these kings who are going to abuse their power. What does the king do? He eventually, he kills Naboth and he confiscates his land. Well, the king gets away with it. The commandment thou shalt not murder is to say, no, you kings are supposed to abide by these laws also. And it protects the vulnerable from being exploited by the wealthy and the powerful and the, and the elite and the kings. Uh, married persons do not commit adultery. Well, that's to protect the women. Because if the husband says, you know what? Sorry about this. I'm just going to do what I want to do and, and abuse you and send you off on my way. No. You know, there's the debate between Jesus and the, and the religious leaders like, well, you know, Moses told us to give a certificate of divorce, whatever we, and, and Jesus like, no, he didn't tell you to do that at all. He didn't command that at all. He permitted it mm-hmm. because he knew if you just sent your wife away without giving her a certificate of divorce, she can't remarry because she's still technically owned by the, the previous husband. Even the issues of adultery are to protect the spouse and the woman who's subject to being uh, exposed. The commandment to not steal protects those who are going to be vulnerable to things being stolen, like Naboth's village, people who are going to bear false witness. Well, guess what? And just think about American justice system, for for example, (laughs) the Mm African-American who gets abused because this guy lies in court and the sheriff allows it or the justice of the peace allows it because of the racism that was going on. The laws about thou shall not bear false witness are to protect the vulnerable, and the same thing with coveting, of course, we already mentioned Naboth's farm and being confiscated by the king. So the laws of the, of the Old Testament commandments were to protect the vulnerable. And the same way Jesus is also saying, hey, and this is what we're going to do in my kingdom. And in my kingdom, we're going to turn these things upside down and we're going to protect those who are being exposed or vulnerable or being exploited. Okay. So in light of all this giving an overview of what the Sermon on the Mount is without going through, you know, <laughs> expositorily through every passage and all that. Yeah. How do we just need to start thinking differently about the Sermon on the Mount and how do we need to read it differently? Well, we need to understand it in the context of the kingdom. And note, if you go to the Beatitudes and maybe we'll get to this in our next episode, we'll decide whether how much more we want to get in the, the Sermon on the Mount or not. But the Beatitudes are framed by, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Can you describe what the Beatitudes are? Because yeah. everyone might not know that term. Okay. Yeah. So Matthew 5, verses 3 through 8, mm-hmm. blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We call those the Beatitudes, and we'll discuss mm-hmm. why later. The very first one and the very last one, the blessings are, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so also with the last one, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So they're framed with this reference to the kingdom. So the first thing I'd say is that we have to understand the Sermon on the Mount in light of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is different, radically different from the kingdoms of the world. And the kingdoms of the world, power, wealth, especially military might, they rule. And those who have those things are blessed. In the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit are blessed. 
Yeah, this is this is going to have direct application in this time because you yeah. literally have Jews who are living in Roman occupied Judea, where th- it's the military power that is yeah you completely oppressing everyone. Yeah, I, absolutely, and un, and oppression works through power, and, and you see this. And I wrote a blog. I think this came out earlier this week as we're recording this. So for you listening to this, um, the day it's released, it came out a couple of weeks ago on militarism in Ukraine and, and what's happening there. And I said, look, here's what happens. And that is that powers that be do everything they can to stay in power. Mm-hmm. That's their first goal. Even someone who's a good, let's say you have a good congressman. Okay. I'll I just work with me for a second, Vinny. Just <laughs> pretend that, that good congressman says, I want to be elected because I want to do things for the people and I want to help the people. Well, he still has to, or she still has to do things for the people that got that person in power. And it wasn't the poor. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the masses. Mm-hmm. It was some corporation or some elite or someone, hey, I'll help you get in power. I'll, I'll fund your campaign and help you get elected. And then when you get elected, you have to help me. And what that person does, they go, well, because I'm a good congressman, I need to stay in power so I can do good things. And therefore, I will do these things to make sure I stay in power. It's very circular. <laughs> it, it very much is. Yeah. If you're going to do things strictly for the people, because that's your motive, you're probably not going to get elected, mm-hmm. even in our democracy. And if you do get elected, you're not going to stay in power. Mm-hmm. It's just simply not going to happen. So this is the way the kingdoms of the world work. But the kingdom of God is just this upside down nature where we're actually going to love you so much, we're going to die for you. Mm-hmm. And this is the way my kingdom works. This great climactic moment, he's on the cross and they're, they're taunting him. You saved others, now save yourself. And the way the kingdoms of the world work is if you want to show us who you are, prove yourself right now. Get off this cross. If you can save others, save yourself now. And then we're all going to recognize who you are. And Jesus' answer will be, if I did that, I'd be doing exactly what all your kingdoms do. But instead, if I stay on this cross, I'm going to love you. Because if I get down from the cross, I'm going to condemn you. Hmm. If he gets off the cross, he acts just like the kingdoms of the world do, do. And he condemns us all. So then the people of God, us, we're called to this loving, sacrificial, faithful life of laying down our lives for the sake of the other. And that's why Jesus says, oh, and blessed are you. So if you look at the, you know, Vinny and I were talking about this off mic one day, are there eight Beatitudes or are there nine? There's eight. The first and the eighth one are framed with kingdom of, of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The ninth one then changes from third person to second person. Mm -hmm. So blessed are the poor in spirit, third person. And then blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for so they treated the prophets who were before you. The second person, all of a sudden now he's applying it specifically to his disciples saying, okay, now this is what the kingdom of God people look like. They're poor in spirit. They mourn and they weep. And and that's all about injustice, by the way. They're they're mourning, mourning and weeping at injustice. They're pure in heart. They seek righteousness, which is another word for justice. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you're going to suffer. And you're going to faithfully suffer for the sake of the nations. And they're going to know that you are my people when you do these things. This is in marked contrast to the larger American church that we see right now. This larger American church, this evangelical church has been trying to grab the, the headlines, but with grabbing power, trying to stay in power, it's the very opposite of what this kingdom ethic is all about. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people that are disillusioned because of what they see in the American church. Mm -hmm. And I understand it. I totally get it. And my answer is, I'm not saying that those people aren't Christians. I'm saying that's not the church. The church is going to be harder to see, but if you look for it, you're going to find it. You're going to see that, that dear woman, that praise consistently for righteousness and for for justice and for other people. You're going to see those people working in the food bank. You're going to see those people working to care for the homeless people. You're going to see those people working to to promote peace and advocating for peace and for justice. That, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the kingdom of God, right? There you go. And these people that are doing acts of violence and protesting, I've got my rights and you, you guys are all going to burn in hell. That's not the kingdom of God. Now, those people may or may not be Christians. We're not going to go there. 
but that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. So if you, mm-hmm. I get it, if you want to be disillusioned by the church, we've got plenty of history to be disillusioned by. We, we kind of supported the crusades. We kind of, yep. we've done a you know, burned witches. We've done all that, but that's not the church. The churches are starting hospitals and orphanages and schools. The church is feeding people and helping people out in the, in the battlefields. That's the church. And I think that's what the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to. All right. So this is obviously for, for many people, this might be a new way of thinking about just the Bible in general, but especially the Sermon on the Mount. If the whole point of this sermon, which we've learned starts at the end of chapter four and goes through chapter nine, if it's about Jesus announcing Yahweh's covenantal promises, which are coming to pass, but here's the bummer guys. It doesn't look like what you expected it. Is, is that what we're saying? And how is that received by his That's original a very audience? American way of saying it, by the way. If thank you. Think you about thank it. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Because yeah. it's it's the good news, mm-hmm. but it's the good news to the poor. Mm. I think the way we think, because we're middle class Americans, right? Yeah. We don't. This is really good news for those of you who are disadvantaged, for mm. those who are on the margins, for those who are vulnerable, for those who are, are abused. This is wonderful news. You don't have to do anything to get in other than repent. Now, those who have wealth and power. Yeah, you might have to sacrifice that at the stake of the cross. You might have to surrender that to the kingdom. He might let you keep it as long as you use it for the kingdom purposes. Or he might say, no, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and then come follow me. And so, oh, well, I'm Jewish. You know? I'm, a, I'm a son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no longer, as John the Baptist is going to say in the Gospel of Luke, God can raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. The critiquing of power is so often missed by the church today. And I wonder if it's missed so much because we are actually the ones in power Hmm. and it's now a self-critique. And I don't think we like that. The whole idea of the gospel is that we actually surrender power because we carry crosses and we suffer at the hands of power. And you can say this is a Christian nation all you want. We we did those podcasts on on Christian nationalism, but a Christian nation means one that actually submits to power and surrenders power for the sake of, mm. by the way, you can't have a Christian nation because as soon as you live the Christian eth- ethic as a nation, mm-hmm. you're going to be overrun by somebody else. Yeah, right. You know, some of the nation is going to come. Oh, guess what? They're not going to fight back. I can slap them on the right cheek, the left cheek and everything mm-hmm. else. You know, I can nuke them, nuke them, nuke them. And then boom, I take over the land. It won't work. But let's look at this really quickly and we'll finish up on this. And, we'll, and maybe we'll go into the Sermon on the Mount even more next time. Matthew critiques power consistently. In fact, if you look at Matthew's gospel, he's going to say, you know, human, and we'll look at this passage later, but Matthew 20, human powers always use coercively. The, the kings of the, of the world, they lord over those in authority, but not so among you, Jesus is going to say. Matthew 20, mm-hmm. verses 25 and t- through 27. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you look at all the rulers in the gospel of Matthew, they're all negative. Herod slaughters the kids. Archelaus is so bad that Jesus and his family decide to go back up to Nazareth. Herod Antipas murders John the Baptist and threatens Jesus. Pilate orders Jesus to be crucified, knowing full well that he's innocent. Mm -hmm. The religious leaders amongst the Jewish people are under the influence of the evil one, and they owe their place in the world to the devil. That's Matthew 13, verse 19, and Matthew 13, verses 24 through 26, and 37 through 39. The disciples are then presented alongside the slaves and the powerless. They're not supposed to seek possessions of leadership. They are to go with when they go out and preach the gospel. Don't take anything with you. No, no money bag, no purse, no sandals, no shoes. Stay in the first house that, that welcomes you in. Jesus says, I'm sending you out actually as, as sheep amongst wolves. If you want to be first, you should be last, and the last should be first. The rule of God throughout the gospel of Matthew is always associated with those who lack power, with the meek. Matthew's going to call them children and little ones, or the least of these. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's famous episode. When did we see you naked? Or when did we see you thirsty? Mm-hmm. When did we visit you in prison? And he says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. So I thought this was actually really provocative. A couple of years ago, I was looking through a, a New Testament introduction by uh, Mark Allen Powell. And he makes this comment. He says, look, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the like Herod, who's a Roman king, but Herod's, he's a client king. And Rome says, hey, who, who can I get to rule over you know, the land of Palestine or Judea for us? Hey, I'll get this Herod guy. Let him do it. You know, he picks a puppet king, a client king. Herod was Idumean, so he wasn't fully Jewish, but partially Jewish. 
So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and these, and these Roman kings, Antipas, were all client kings of Rome. Here's what Mark Allen Powell says. He says, it can probably be said that Matthew's antipathy for the Jewish leaders owes less to the fact that they are Jewish and more to the fact that they are leaders. Hmm. And what he means by that actually is that they're actually in place by Rome. So when they're holding on to things and saying, you know, we don't know about this Jesus guy, it's because he was a threat, Jesus was, a threat to their power. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, that's the contrast. Jesus is speaking into power saying, no, we do power differently. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the American church, again, to bring that back up is to finish with, I think we've missed this one a lot. Our focus on personal piety has obviously been misleading but our lack of focus on what the kingdom actually looks like has been significantly problematic. Yeah. That's a lot to digest. A couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and meditate ne- on this sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I was even going to say like, we're, we're not going to be done with the sermon on the Mount. So we're going to have to retouch some of this stuff probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Some advice for folks until next time, if, as they're rereading through these few chapters, what's, what's a way they could start cal- recalibrating their minds as they read. Yeah, great question. I'd say open up Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and read it. And obviously don't forget 8 and 9. But then I'd say, and then meditate on Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Mm-hmm. Just read it over and over again. And, and don't stop. And that is, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't you worry about food and clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. If God so arrays the lilies of the field, will he not care for you, O people of little faith? So it's really powerful. And then say, Lord Jesus, I need you to increase my faith and I need the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Ask, seek, and knock because this seems to be beyond me. Hmm. Loving my enemies? Yeah, that's that's definitely beyond me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, but do it perfectly. Just yeah, like God does. That's right, yeah. Be perfect <laughs> like your father in heaven is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Great stuff. We will be back next week as we'll continue in the Matthew series. Yeah, it's going to be fun to keep going. Send any questions in to Rob if you have them, comments, encouragements, or anything that you're just learning from this. Uh, We'd love to hear just how this is affecting you. So there's a number of ways that you could reach Rob. All right, guys. Can't wait to see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.